What's going on, Larry? Well, I haven't seen you for a week. I'm seeing you. So for the last two weeks, it's been the best time that I've had. <laughs> The best, honestly, because I've been working at Cornell with a group of st- a new intake from the runway program. And these guys have got something. They've got something. And when you always ask me at the end, would you invest? Well, obviously, it's too early for me to say yes, but these have got something very special. So that's, that's been great because sometimes you, you know, you work with people and thinking, Oh, goodness me, don't do this. Just get a job. <laughs> But these are, are really quite great people. So that's been good. And also that we've got the go-ahead on the book at the moment, the Irresistible Entrepreneur book. And that is going to take the questions that we've been asking and the answers and the experts who we ask, they're actually going to write a chapter on each chapter. So each chapter will have, we tried to keep it to 10 very important questions and that'll be coming out in the new year. So it's something to be doing. And I've been to Aspen and I've best time. So I'm exhausted, but it's the weekend ahead and I'm looking forward to it. What about you? Uh, everything's great. Um, ex- obviously, I'm very excited about the book that's coming out yeah. for our audience. It's something to look forward to. Uh, and I'm here with you, so how much better yeah. can my day get, right? And you don't have much of a life apart from work, do you? Not really? very much, right, Larry? No. Good. <laughs> Keep it that way. Anyway, who have we got today? Today, we have James Rotten on. He's a lawyer with a business mind. And what we'll be discussing today is about startups who are just getting started and kind of navigating the pitfalls of the business world and how to avoid any, I wouldn't want to say problems, but things to avoid going forward in business. Yeah, I mean, so many times people have ignored the legal issues that they have to take care of in their business. And if you're an entrepreneur, it's not a natural, natural issues that you really think about or care about, but it is. I can't tell you how many times I wish people had really thought about it. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what he says. And I hope it'll hope it will give, you know, our community some ideas of things that they should be looking at, checking as well. So look forward to look forward to let's get going. Let's bring him on. Okay. Speak to you later. Everybody and welcome to the Irresistible Startup Podcast. And I'm really delighted to introduce and meet James Ratanan today. And I'm really, really appreciative because he's actually uh, videoing this from Israel. And I know that he has a lot of uh, issues and stress at the moment. So we wish James and his family and all the people around that they should be safe. So we're going on to something, uh, a subject today that I'm a bit nervous about. I'm nervous about will anybody, how interested are people in knowing the legal issues they should be thinking about when they have a startup? From my experience is it's a last thing that they look at and it's really something that they're not terribly interested. This is at their peril. It's at their peril. And I can tell you from a number of startups, and remember, quite a number of startups don't survive. Many of the reasons are they have not respected what they need to do and understand, or at least understand, to protect 
their business. And James is this expert, is this expert on, on, on business protection, I would say. So let's go ahead. And I want to uh, start off by asking you, James, what are the key elements that founders should consider regarding legal issues? What are the key elements? I mean, there are many, and we'll go through them. Um, if you can give some idea of those key elements, that would be really helpful. Uh, with pleasure and delighted to, to be here, even though, as you mentioned, difficult situation out there at the moment with everything that's happened, but it's important that we keep on going and uh, that it's business as usual. And obviously, Israel is a huge technology center in our practice centers around uh, technology and startups. Uh, so delighted to try and impart some wisdom. And, and as you say, uh, startups can often underestimate the importance of legal issues. And it's important, even though most startups or all startups are recommended to take a good lawyer, it's important that founders understand some of the key issues so that they can ask their lawyers the right questions. So you asked a question about uh, employment agreements and what are the key elements that, 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 that a company needs to think about at the early stage. So if we're thinking about the, the employees that are being taken on, I think consistency is a huge, hugely important point. Uh, as you know, employees like to talk to each other. And if you create a situation where different employees have different rights, especially at this early stage where you'll only have a handful of employees and everybody's talking to each other, then you're gonna make it more difficult uh, as you go along. So I think the first step is really to decide, okay, what are the key rights that go into an employment agreement? And as a company, what's our, if you like, policy for those key rights? And the key rights usually revolve around, obviously, salary. And let's leave that aside because that can be different for different people. But notice periods, whether there will be any severance, obviously, in the United States is a at-will country, so you can terminate an employee at any time. So deciding what would be the rights to an employee when they're terminated is very important and very important to be consistent about that. One area where a lot of founders really uh, in the early stage uh, come across a difficulty is the whole issue of giving equity. Uh, it's very tempting, especially when some of the early employees may be friends or people that the founders uh, have known for some time to be informal in an employment agreement. And very often they'll say something like, I agree to give John 5% of the company. Uh, the problem is that as time goes by and as the different investment rounds uh, come, then that's looked at. That 5% today um, shouldn't be 5% in, uh, in, in two years' time or in three years' time or five years' time, because as time goes on, the company sells shares and that 5% is diluted. But if you write it in the wrong way, if you say John is entitled to 5% of this company, then that means that John is entitled to 5% of the company uh, at all times. And that's clearly not the intention. And we've seen even that, uh, you know, in my early years of practice, uh, sometimes you'll even have uh, not necessarily an employment agreement, sometimes a consulting agreement with that type of language, and you'll get to an IPO, and suddenly they'll 
jump up somebody from uh, from many years ago or, or the due diligence that the underwriters are doing, they'll say, wow, John is entitled to 5% of this company and this company's valuation is $500 million. So John is entitled to 25 million. So I think being very formal about um, uh, issue about the way equity grants are written and promised and making sure that a lawyer is really involved in in reviewing that, making sure that ultimately the employees enter into standard uh, option agreements or restricted stock agreements is is really key um, to, to making sure that you don't um, run afoul of of any issues, which are actually really pretty easy to solve at the beginning. I mean, many of the people in the startups that we work with, um, one of the their, their, their main angst are the fact that the original love affair, because when you are a startup and you have one person or two people or whatever, it's a kind of a love affair. You're there in it. It's a startup. You could even be millionaires, billionaires, you know, and they'll, and this is the, 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 the crazy thing that encourages people. The dream. It's this dream that they've got and, and their co-founders, which is a slightly different way of, of having to deal with them legally as well, especially, but you're there together. And then some days you have good things happening and some days you have bad things happening and you're in it and it's a love affair it's a love affair with the startup and it's a love affair with the people who are starting with you beware really beware because if you don't get the legal situation sorted out at the beginning which is a problem and I think the problem is, I don't know how you can answer this, James, is that I'm a startup. I'm working from my, my bedroom at home. I have very few resources. How can I afford to pay for a, pay a very expensive lawyer? Unlike you, I'm sure it's very reasonable lawyer. How, how do I, how do I juggle this? How do I cope with this? So, so I think it's important to, to understand that you're going to have to uh, find a lawyer and find a lawyer that you have a relationship with and that you that you like uh, and you think. Can you sorry, can, lawyers themselves are generally not the most jolliest people. But so, you know, what sort of questions should somebody who's not used to talking to lawyers? What what should they ask them? You know, because do they dare ask them what the cost is, or do they? What do they do? How do they deal with it? So this is what people say to me. Um, they say, we understand, we, we, we heard about you from such and such a place. Um, can you tell us about the experience you've had with startups? And then <laughs> inevitably, once you get to the end of the conversation, the question will be, does your firm have any arrangement for dealing with startups? Um, we've spoken to other firms and they have a deferred fee arrangement, which usually means the startup pays very little at the beginning. And then if, once the startup has closed a round of funding, they'll true up the law firm for the work that's been done and for the funding. And that's really the investment of the of the law firm. So that that would be the, the question that I would ask. Now, that, that's a brilliant answer. So deferred, tell me again, it's deferred agreement, yes? Yeah, I would say deferred fee arrangement. Deferred fee arrangement, that means... You are in it with us. And many companies will, firms will do this. And if they don't do it, then don't go to them because they'll be too expensive, I would suggest. But if, if you, unless you've got tons of money uh, to throw away, but really make that, that could save 
a lot of angst and and you may need to take some time out to actually contact different firms and find out about the deferred. It simply means that they are gambling on you doing well and they have a certain amount of time put aside to be do that gamble. And that's why, of course, and we'll get on to, you know, my favourite uh, my favorite point is how bad at selling uh, often startups are. You have to sell with enthusiasm, not just be asking the question, because they're trying to, is that right? James, you're trying to weigh up, is this person got any chance or are they nudniks? Uh, is that right? Yeah, abso- absolutely right. I mean, we're, we're almost like an investor. So the, when you think about it from the lawyer's perspective, he's thinking, okay, what are my chances of this company going on to do one, two, three, four rounds of financing and then maybe an M&A deal where, where they'll really make their money? And so that's what he's thinking. And, and that's why it's important to be confident and to have uh, a rational business model and a business plan and to be uh, compelling in, in presenting it and to be likable as well. Because, um, uh, you know, as you're kind of alluding to, this isn't necessarily the most exciting uh, part of being a startup, but you do end up spending a lot of time with your lawyers on the phone. Um, so it's important to like them and to, to establish that rapport. So yeah, for sure, you're selling yourself in a way to another investor in this pl- in this situation, the lawyer. Right. I think if you turn off the podcast now, that's the most important part that you'll get so far. Anyway, there's more to come, but that. Is, and by the way, many many startups are financed by families and friends, I think they're called FFs and S, friends, family and fools. For those people who are listening in today, why please speak to the founders because they're terribly busy in developing something we hope is going to be exciting. Please check with them, say, what are the legal things? For example, how crucial is it for a startup to prioritise trademark registrations uh, and what mistakes do co-founders do regarding intellectual property? And could you explain those, <laughs> what the, it means? What, what it means, trademark registration and intellectual property? Sure. So let me take trademarks first, because that's a, a fairly self-contained and easy one. And trademarks, as, as, as most people know, is really the, the name of the, of the business, um, classic trademark would be Coca-Cola. So often when companies are incorporated and, and founders start on their, on their journey, that's the first thing they think about is the name. And name is really important. The one thing I'll say is that putting money into trademarks, and, and it doesn't cost a lot of money to uh, register an initial trademark, but, but really putting a lot of money into trademarks in different countries should only be done, I think, if your business, if brand is really important to your business, meaning if certainly if you're a, if we're, if you're a B2C company, a business-to-consumer company where brand is going to be important, then trademarking is more important. And depending on the countries, the markets where you're going to sell your products, then you want to be looking at registering those trademarks in other countries. But you don't have to do everything at the beginning and Sometimes people get caught into the trap. Certainly, if they're a you know a business to business company that's providing some software that nobody really sees and goes into the back of a machine, then do you really need to spend a lot of money on trademarks? So you can you can waste money on on things like that. Um, 
the other elements of intellectual property, which are maybe more significant, um, I think, in the in the world of, of technology startups, obviously, are copyrights and, and patents. Um, so on the copyright side, which is tremendously important for any company dealing in software. Sorry, James, can I just can I just come in there? Could you please explain clearly to everybody actually what is copyright? In fact, you know, all these different legal terms, you know, are, are often not understood. What does copyright really mean? And have you any any examples when people haven't dealt with a copyright? So, so the easiest way to think about copyright is a book. Um, the author of a book has the rights to those original works, which means that um, if it's established that he's the owner of that copyright, then um, he can exclude other people from using the, the, that book. If somebody then goes to publish that book, um, and sells that book without his permission, then they have to account to him um, or pay him effectively for the use of that book without his permission. So if we take that a step further and we think about software, software is effectively um, written uh, code, which is creating functionality. And that written code is can be protected by copyright which means that the author of that copyright, in this case, the company that was established by the founder, um, should own that copyright. And the challenge for the startup and any company is to make sure that they own that copyright because by owning the copyright, they have the right to exclude others from, from using it. So that's very powerful, especially. I mean, often on one's journey of a startup, they actually leave leave the company. Uh, and is there any sort of, if you is that copyright in anybody's name or has it always got to be in the company's name? So, so there are really three, three or four ways to, to protect the copyright. The first is, uh, and you know, developers will know this a lot better than me, is that in the, in the code that they're creating, to make it very clear in the code that the company owns the copyright, and uh, to have a very clear record of, uh, of that being created, the day that it was created and that the copyright is indeed owned by the company. So the first one is creating the record. The second one I would say is when you share the code, the software with other people, with other companies, it's very important that that's done in a way that the rights to use that copyright, that software, are very clear. You may have heard the word licensing. So the, the license just means permission to use. So it's very important that the permission to use that uh, software has been documented in, in an agreement of some form. And with that permission, you, you charge for it, you get paid. Is that right? Yeah, you, you, you can or you, you can't. You can actually, you know, I can decide to say, Larry, uh, you can use my, I license you the right to use this software for no money, but this software, but you can only use it um, in this particular way for this particular reason for two years. And only if you agree not to use it, uh, not to license it to anybody else. So you can't make money out of my software by licensing, licensing it to some, someone else. So that, that would go into, you know, the, you know, I'm summarizing, I'm, what's the word, generalizing the bucket of, of permissions to use the, the, the copyright. And, and the third piece, which is very, is obvious, 
is making sure that you keep it secret, that you don't make it easy for people to access that code, particularly the source code, uh, and take that um, software. Right, right. So I'm a startup. I'm a startup, and I've got my friend as a startup. I've got two friends, actually, believe it or not, and they're, you know, they're joining in with me. And they're actually you know, software geniuses and everything. When you sort of say, you know, keep it secret, how, how does it work? I mean, because don't forget the relationships and people listening to relationships between startups are so close and loving. They don't think about it. And this is what I'm trying to want all the time through this podcast, because all the time I'm seeing, you know, if nine out of 10 startups don't work out, then one of the reasons why they don't work out is because people don't take this seriously and therefore have such arguments that they can't actually sort out. So please, please take this seriously. I know it sound, it's, it's very heavy subject. Any stories for us about issues that you've seen? I mean, obviously you can't give away names or anything. Maybe you can. <laughs> no, you can't give away names. Any stories that you can tell of how it has affected some clients of another lawyer, you know? Uh, it's, it's actually over, over recent years, I'm, I'm seeing it less, but certainly in the early years uh, when, I, when I practiced, um, you know, I remember one occasion when uh, there were two founders, good friends had been... Uh, in the army together, went to university together. One was more uh, business oriented, and one was the one was the developer. And uh, in the initial uh, in the initial stages of the company, there wasn't there wasn't a great deal of documentation. There was no no real documentation uh, describing the different rights of the founders, and they hadn't entered into employment agreements and weren't really employees. They were just tinkering with. Uh, software um, and developing and going out and uh, and speaking to people and you know eventually what happened was that um, you you know the one of the the founders decided that the business wasn't really going to go anywhere um, and uh, they that they went their separate ways only for the developer founder to to then take the software and um, uh, you know, start start his own business with that software and and develop that and make make a lot of money. Now, um, you know, obviously there are different breaches of duty and um, some breaches of contract that went into that. But had that you know had that initial founder, when his developer friend was still a friend of his, entered into a more robust uh, agreement um, establishing that anything that was developed belonged to the company. Um, in anything to do with the software, then that wouldn't have been possible, or at least would have been very difficult. So I think it's the the trap that uh, people make is that when whenever, as you mentioned before, when everything's rosy, you just you tend not to be formal about the documentation you enter into, and it's only after time goes by and you see what it's like to to run a company with very little money and 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 inevitably somebody uh, contributes more than the other and 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 you don't really have you're unable to reconcile those issues um that that lack of formality in the beginning really comes back to bite you okay the other uh, experience that i've had which is uh, interesting um is 
I have been present where many startups are making presentations to investors. So they're making presentation to investors. Now, the investors, I'm sure James will agree with me if he doesn't nod, but whatever. But they understand these points. And they won't make any big comment when you're making a presentation, but they will ask you some of the questions. And I also notice the startups don't really even notice the question they're asking them in a strong way. And I know that in a number of cases that those investors dismiss moving forward. Now, in some cases, I have to tell you, they're so excited about what you're doing, they'll come in, check it and encourage you to do it. So it's not always a complete fail, but it's a gamble that you are taking. And also what I found very interesting is that the, the angst, the terrible trouble within families, Fs and Fs, who, because they love them, because they're so impressed with their son, daughter, best friend, or ever, husband, wife, whatever it is, they're so impressed with them that they're willing to give their own hard-earned money because they too could become millionaires, billionaires in the future. And they know how hard, and to be a startup, you've got to work very hard. And they're seeing, they're working day and night and thinking, wow, I'm so happy to be able to support Fred or Jenny or whoever it is. And then unfortunately, as time goes by, it actually doesn't work. It doesn't work. And sometimes the years go by. I think the average startup that fails is like four to five years. And that time goes by and suddenly... Suddenly, those 500 pounds, dollars, whatever, that they've invested at, or hundreds of thousands, is gone, completely gone. And in that particular case, it's where not only do businesses fall apart, families and friends fall apart. So please consider that. While there is this excitement of your friendship, while there is the pride of a family and friends supporting you, at the end of the day, you should at least not fail because of these issues we are talking today, because they're very hard for people to understand. They can fail if the market's not right, because if you've not done the legal side and messed it up and failed, not only do you lose the business, only too much do families and friends fall out over this. So take that. This is why I take this particular podcast incredibly serious, not just for the startups, but for people who are supporting the startups. And they should be asking the questions of their startup. Have you done this? So make sure you do that. And it's not because you're trying to catch them out. It's because you're trying to help them. And maybe you need to give them some more money if they need to spend on a lawyer or whatever. Sorry, sorry to move on, but I feel quite, quite emotive, emotional when I'm seeing these fabulous yeah, no, I people. mean, if you don't, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no, good, but, please uh, do. But, but, uh, and in terms of the, the emotional intelligence, intelligence side of that, I think you spoke to very well. But one thing to, to bear in mind when we talk about family and friends is that they usually come in at the early stage and they end up being quite small shareholders in the long run. And as the company grows and you need to, to have, you know, maybe you need flexibility, um, having to chase 
uh, a friend who you fell out with to get their signature for something becomes very difficult. Um, and so, so I think the all of these, there's a cost with everything. There's a cost with taking money from family. Obviously, taking money from family and friends is is practical. They're people that trust you. But aside from the you know the emotional side of things and the fact that you have to live with. Uh, people and you have relationships which are maybe much more important than the the work itself. There's a practical side, which is uh, if you fall out with them, uh, then often those fallouts can be very bitter, and and you may need them because they're they're stuck in your company, they're stuck being your shareholders, and ultimately when uh, you want them to cooperate to get them to consent to certain things, it may be more difficult to get their consent. So I think have to think about that. And also that goes in again to the, the, the documentation that these smaller shareholders will be signing on. You have to think about that through the lens that, well, in three years time, when this shareholder only has 0.003% of the company, um, how do I make sure that I don't need their consent or I can get their, you know, I, I can get their consent easily. Moving on. As you employ people, and one of the excitements that people have in getting a job is not just getting a job, it's being part of the action. It's a really, really attractive, it's very attractive for many people to join a startup company. And for two reasons. One, they believe it's going to be successful. And that's another selling job you need to do when you're interviewing people and advertising. But the other is they have a share of the action. And it's that share of the action that changes everything for them. They're an owner. They're part of a team. So it's that giving shares to employees. Uh, and, and when you do it and you've got no money and you haven't earned, you've done it for two years and you've not written one single invoice, giving the 5%, the 1%, the 7%, Please, can you give some either history of it or real direction about that negotiation about, I know you did mention it earlier in the podcast, but I really want to emphasize about what, um, what, what should you consider when determining the appropriate equity share to offer staff to people, not investors I'm talking about? Sure. And, and you're right. It is hugely important and it comes up all the time and is part other than the fundraising itself is probably the largest part of what we we end up getting involved in um, because people obviously are the most important uh, the most important asset of, the, of, of any business so the starting point is really to, to first of all think about a budget of equity that you are going to earmark for the employees. And this is very often referred to as a, as an option pool. Um, and typically, you know, there's no real um, uh, red letter law or black letter law, obviously, on what this needs to be. It's not written in stone, but maybe typically in an early stage company, um, at the beginning, you would think of a 10% option pool. I'm not, and I'm assuming that the founders and the, are effectively going to be the CEO and the CTO. So this is for your other key employees and other employees. So you put aside 10, 10% and um, then you have to decide how you're going to allocate that 10%. And, uh, you know, the, the best advice is to be quite careful 
in not giving out too much too quickly, because ultimately that 10% is going to come on your account, right? That that 10% is going to take you from 100% down to 90%. And if you give away too much too quickly, then uh, it's likely you're going to have to give away more. Um, but, but that's just a, a yardstick. And then once you have uh, your group of employees and you decide how to allocate that, then I think you, going back to the consistency, there has to be some correlation between the percent you're giving and the seniority or the value of that employee. So just because somebody you like more or maybe may have been your friend, um, that shouldn't be the criteria for giving them more equity. It should really be, even at this early stage, uh, this ties into some of the things that you were saying, Larry, is to have this discipline of formality um, in, in, in fixing the amounts for each employee. So once you've fixed what you're going to give to each employee, then we get into some technical terms that come around a lot. Uh, and that is the idea of vesting. Are you, are you familiar with the idea of vesting? No, tell us about vesting. Well, I am, but maybe somebody out there isn't. It's something you're wearing to my shirt on a cold day. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I wonder if it, I wonder if it comes, <laughs> comes from there. But Keeps vesting, you warm. Vesting really means the coming into ownership of the the stock. So if I give you, I say, okay, Larry, you're going to join my startup. I'd like to give you 3% of the the company. You don't get that 3% day one. What I say to you is, okay, that 3%, you don't earn any of that 3% until a year has gone by. So you have to work in the business for a whole year and then I'll give you the first 1% of that 3%. That's That um, period of a year is called a cliff. That will be called a one-year cliff. So the first time you get ownership of that 3% is if you work for the business for a year. If you leave or if you're fired in that year, then you lose that whole 1%. Then after that, I may say, okay, after that first year, then you're going to vest um, in equal portions of the remaining two percent every quarter. So after the you know the next uh, the next year you will have earned another percent, and after the third year you will have earned all of your your three percent. So that schedule, which I simplify greatly, is called a vesting schedule, and it, it's important to. Uh, Hopefully, in uh, consultation with your your lawyer and your advisors uh, and investors, to to establish a standard uh, vesting schedule. Uh, and the benefit is that that gives both the employee an incentive. He's not going to know that he has to keep on working at the company and delivering in order to earn that equity. And conversely, if the employee you need to part ways with him or her then it means you haven't wasted uh, equity, if you like, because you get to uh, take back whatever you haven't given him or her already. So so do remember, James, that this um, podcast actually is listened in a number of countries. So be, we've got to be a little bit wide about just America. Um, but for example, um, from, from, again, what we've seen, um, the irresistible is the, is the fact that that vesting is one of the greatest way to keep people in, engaged in, 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 the, in the business. It also 
makes people have some, not just feeling, but having some real ownership. And having ownership, a small, albeit small ownership of a business, just make people feel very different. But it is a responsibility, you know, and it is, you know, um, how you actually give one person one amount of money or new people coming in another amount of money. I don't know how you deal with that because it changes, doesn't it, from the beginning part. So sometimes we're seeing where people have been given some shares um, in that way. But later on, somebody else has come along in a higher position and got a lot more shares. How do you deal with that? Or do you just say this person's at a higher level than you? Uh, you know, the, the, it happens all the time. And uh, it's like any any employment benefit you give somebody, whether it's a bonus or salary. And and that, you know, sometimes it's unavoidable, right? You can't be perfect. You need you need you need the special um graphical interface developer right now so you give him a bit more because because you're desperate so 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 it happens right you can't flagellate yourself for for everything but um and, and obviously what, what you'll end up having to do is increase the size of your option pool so that you can give true true people up meaning get you know you can make up for what you didn't give them um and that's just the way the way it works, and and you just have to make peace with the fact as a founder that those types of I wouldn't call them mistakes, but realities are going to be absorbed by you. Which is why um, the most successful founders, or at least the ones that make the most money in the end, are usually the ones who have been as stingy as possible uh, with <laughs> uh, with equity, because it's sometimes is this, very is easy this a technical think- term, stingy? <laughs> it's easy to you know you, you think okay equity doesn't cost me any money and and today i've got a hundred percent so i'll give you uh two percent and you three percent and you four percent but um studies show that founders typically when they get to an exit the average uh percentage that they will have collectively between them is 20 percent. so you start off at 100 you end at 20 every little bit that you give to somebody um, is coming out of your pocket. So we've talked about investors. These are, you know, we've described many types of investors. But in fundraising, how do founders weigh the cost and benefits of taking on investors versus traditional debt financing? And could you please start off by explaining what traditional debt financing means? Yeah, so, so traditional debt financing typically think of your bank lending you money to buy a car. Uh, and that bank will typically they'll lend you $20,000, whatever it might be, and they'll take a lien uh, on the car, a charge over that car, which means if you didn't pay the money back, then uh, the, the bank would be able to take the, the car, sell it, and pay off as much of that debt as possible. And really the same thing in, in companies, um, traditional debt, is that the bank would come and the bank or a different um, non-bank lender would say, okay, uh, Larry.com or whatever it is, irresistible, um, we will lend you a million dollars and we'll take a, a lien, a security interest over your company. Um, so that's traditional debt. And what I think you're referring to as 
um, you know, to, uh, an, inv an approach to take an equity investor would, where is where an investor where an investor comes um, and invests an amount of money in the capital of your business uh, and gets shares in, in, in exchange for that money. Okay, so another reason why you've got to respect friends, family and, and finance and, and, and investors in the fact that they don't have, you know, they can't at least go in and get, take your, your, your laptop away. They, have, they end up with absolutely nothing. So what legal precautions and communication strategies would you recommend for founders considering funding from friends and family? So, you know, a lot of this goes back to, to what you were saying before of communication. And it's a reality that founders take money from friends and family because you have a crazy idea and who else is going to fund you? Uh, but it's very important that you say to them, most startups fail. I think you could lose your money. Um, and, but I think this, re this, this idea is great for these reasons. And um, I think it's important that you, you have an understanding that they can afford to lose the money that they're giving you. Because I think where it gets very stressful is where somebody thinks, wow, Larry has a startup. I'm going to give him you know, $20,000, which is a lot of money for me. But that's going to be multiplied by five times. And, uh, you know, I'm going to have $100,000. And I believe in Larry, and it's a sure bet. That's when the, the problems happen. So I think it's the communication, not making um, too big promises, uh, and having them sign um, typical investor documentation, um, even encouraging them to consult with their own lawyers so that they don't say, hey, you know, you made me sign this document, which was drafted by your lawyer, and I trusted you. That that's a, a sentence you, you you know you you often hear. So I would ask them to do that, and um, you know I would think about ways of keeping things very simple with them. Um, uh, and again, as I said before, if you can maybe put them together in in a proxy of some kind so that if you have a number of different family members so you don't have to go and get the signature of five people every time, uh, maybe you become the proxy holder for those families. There are different sort of technical ways where you can make the, the technicalities of getting shareholder consents uh, more simple down the line. Okay, that, that's great. So, so communication continues to be the, the, the big issue. This is, again, I'm repeating it, and I'm sorry if I'm being repetitive and boring on this podcast, but I am fed up of seeing people fail that shouldn't have failed because along the line they've not shared with their investors of how they're doing. You don't want to say, it's terrible and I think we're going to fail this week. It's about sharing information. The sharing of information and having an agenda and having that list is a discipline for you. And you also need to face the facts. So what they actually do, I'll show you. It's a technical thing that many startups do. <laughs> when it comes to the money, and <laughs> let me focus on what I'm producing. Let me focus on what I'm producing. You know, I'm working 25 hours a day. <laughs> That's at your peril. And with that happy blah, blah, I wish you all a great day and great success. And I'd like to thank James so much for being with us today. It's been so interesting and I hope so useful. It has been to me, so I hope for many. Have a great day.
Bye for now. Thank you. So Larry, how was your discussion with James? It was it was great. It was really, really great. He gave great information. He even gave great hints on how to deal with the cost. Really felt that we move forward in a difficult, complicated um, amount of issues, but he dealt with them quite simply, and I hope they'll be very, very useful to the people out there. Yeah, the law side's not really the most exciting, but it may be the most important. Well, it is the side that causes more heartache. So even though it's not exciting, I really suggest not just um, startups listen to this, but people who are investing, and especially families who are investing, and friends, because they can have the right, if they're investors, to ask the startup if they've got their legal issues in order. So if you are an investor, then also you need to get your, your pen and paper out and be making notes. Really great. I got a lot out of it. That's great. I hope so you heard it here first. If you're an investor or a family member, the show is for you. Uh, I thank you for joining us and we'll see you soon. Have a thank good one. You. Have a good one. For more on me, Larry J. Gould, and the show, check out our website, our irresistible newsletter, and follow us on social media.